invite you to turn to John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel, chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 11 through 15. So John chapter 3, 11 through 15. We had uh, reviewed verse 1 through 10 last week, and we're picking it up at, at verse 11. We finished that two-part series on Born From Above, as we see the interaction with Jesus Christ and a man named Nicodemus. He isn't just any man. This is a well-known, well-respected, well-educated man. This is a man who has studied the Scriptures perhaps his entire life. He is now, as the text says, a ruler of the Jews. He is part of the Sanhedrin. He would be considered also a scribe. He is a, a man who knows the scriptures without comparison to anyone else. This man knows these things well. And so he's intrigued and providentially God has brought him to meet with Jesus because he's heard some things out of the mouth of somebody who he himself admits must be sent from God, calling him rabbi, extending that bit of respect, we don't know if it's in a condescending way, but love thinks the best after all. And so we'll assume that he has respect for the level of teaching that Jesus is presenting, but it's in very, very confusing for him. It's not comporting with what his understanding of Scripture is, with how someone is, is saved. And we looked at, of course, uh, out of that ordo salutis, the order of salvation, we looked at the the whole concept of regeneration, that someone must be born again. And so Nicodemus is asking questions, and he is, Jesus is answering them, and we move on from there. So just to continue our sort of way of just in general identifying where we've been and where we are now, as John is still, still in his diligent pursuit to present the deity of Jesus Christ. He continues to do that. In chapter 1, we see the declaration of his deity and the 15 different titles and designations that's given just in that one chapter. And in the second chapter, we see the, the demonstration of that in the miracles, the demonstration of his deity, no arguing with it. We began that chapter with the wedding at Cana and turning water into wine. And then he goes and clears the temple. He's showing immense power and authority. In Matthew's gospel, later on, there will be another, another temple cleansing where they'll ask him straight out, who, who gives you this authority to do these things? Indeed, he speaks as one with authority as it's recognized in another place. So this is not just any ordinary man. He's proved himself. He's been given the, the declarations from John the Baptist He's been demonstrating that in chapter 2 and then chapter 3. Last week, we saw the dynamics of his deity with what it takes for a man or a woman to be saved. And that is a powerful work. This is the dynamics of regeneration, if you will, which is clearly and literally defined as a force that brings about change or progress in a system or process. That's its little, literal definition. And that's what has to happen. Because a dead heart must be brought to life. And only the author of all life is equipped and has the power to do that. And so we saw that in verse 1 to 10, as we saw that sort of uh, back and forth, that discussion with uh, Nicodemus and this Morning, we're looking at the next passage in chapter 3. So we're still in chapter 3, but the fourth identification we see here is the didactics of his deity. Didactics is just a system of instruction. It's just literally teaching. So we turn a significant corner here. We saw where it was interaction. We saw it was a, a discourse, if you will, with Nicodemus, where Nicodemus is asking questions and Jesus is answering him somewhat enigmatically, as it seems. We have understanding of what he means by how he responded to Nicodemus, but he doesn't get it, does he? It's like, how is a man to return to his mother's womb to be born again? I mean, it, He's thinking a certain way. Jesus understands that. And so that's why he gives them the things that he does. And now we don't hear from Nicodemus again after verse 9 
when he says, how can these things be? So as we enter into verse 11, this is Jesus strictly didactically. He's strictly instructing him, but in a particular way to be sure. So we see, if you will, and this is a statement for you. The discourse turns to didactics as Jesus discloses details of divine deliverance from darkness and death by drawing a distinct dichotomy. Let me read that one more time. (laughs) Discourse turns to didactics as Jesus discloses details of divine deliverance from darkness and death by drawing a distinct dichotomy. He's going to say this is of the earth This is of heaven. He's doing that deliberately. He's making a clear distinction. That begins with D2. Makes a clear distinction between the two worlds. Because see, what you're thinking, Nicodemus, is you're thinking physically. You're you're too earthbound in how you view salvation being achieved. And he has to get his attention, but not just to to turn a few degrees, right? He's got to get his attention to turn 180 degrees. That's sort of the definition of repentance, isn't it? It's it's a, a turning away from the things of this world toward the things of God. That's what he's doing. This is the son of God. This is the son of man. And this is exactly how he's going about this. So of the five verses that we're looking at, this morning, as, as we read this, four of them are written in sort of a classic Hebraic parallelism. It's, uh, some of it is in uh, synonymous, and some of it is like a synthetic uh, type of parallelism. So it's this and this and this and this. This is how he goes through, and we'll read that in just a moment as we finish up this introduction So Nicodemus, Demas, in verse 9, you recall, said, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? So this is quite a designation from the Son of God himself, isn't it? You're the teacher of Israel. I know who you are. I I allowed you that appointment providentially as sovereign God over you. I know exactly the position you have. But more than that, chapter 2 and verse 25, I made it very clear that I understand and can see into the heart. He knows men's hearts. That's why he didn't give and trust himself to those that said they believed, right? So he's looking at Nicodemus' heart. It's almost, if you will, irrelevant what, he, irrelevant what he's saying because he's looking at his heart. He knows the question. He knows the conundrum. He knows what he doesn't understand. And now he's got to say, this is an apple, but these are oranges. You're thinking in an apple orchard. You need to come over to an entirely different way, an entirely different world, of thinking, And that's, that's exactly what he does. So let's get our feet wet here. We'll read 11 through 15 this morning. So he says, and now we're just going into his didactic teaching from here through uh, until he departs. So verse 11, truly I say to you, we speak of knowing all of the scriptures and knowing them thoroughly. I mean, The Pharisees, especially on that level, were fastidious abiders and participants in every jot and tittle of the Mosaic Law, weren't they? They strain at gnats. Jesus is pointing that out. So here's the point. If somebody with that level of understanding of the Scriptures extant at that time, their Scriptures, all of their prophets, all of the things that were declared, all the things that that Peter and the other apostles are putting together as they're preaching throughout Acts, you remember that, they're putting Scripture together one after the next. Peter's first sermon right out of the gate in chapter 2, he's putting together Psalm 110, he's putting together things from Joel, and and he's saying this is what it all means. He's a fisherman. My point is this. If this man who knows and is respected to know the Scriptures as well as Nicodemus does, doesn't get it, then you must be born from above. So relax, right? Relax. Be faithful to share the gospel, but they must be born again. That's why he says it that way. In our message last week, he 
must be born again or he won't understand anything. It doesn't matter who he is. I mean, some people have made their best pitch, their best explanation of the gospel ever. They've prayed hard, all of these things. I remember years ago when we lived in Southern California, hearing, uh, I was driving somewhere and I have heard Chuck Swindoll on the radio. Some of you are familiar with that, term, that name. Um, but he's the, a great storyteller, isn't he? And uh, he told this story about how he had a close friend who was a doctor, physician, very well respected. He's a brilliant man. And he had been praying for him for a long time with regard to salvation, praying for the opportunity to be able to present the gospel just like, just like we all do. And that opportunity finally came. He met with him for lunch, and he really sensed, this is the time. I'm geared up. I've been ready for this. I'm ready to lay out the gospel for him. I've got him alone. It's just him and I. We're going to do this. And he lays out the gospel, spends time explaining all of it to this man. He said he even diagrammed it on a napkin for the doctor, right? You'd think he'd appreciate that. So he, he gets that all laid out for him, and he turns that toward him, and he said, so what do you think? And he paused for a moment, the doctor, and he said, I think that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. That doesn't make any sense at all. Brilliant man. The, the, the preaching of the cross to them that are perishing is foolishness, right? First Corinthians 1.18. It's foolishness. Because these things, chapter 2, verse 14, are spiritually discerned, spiritually appraised. What does that mean? Something, Nicodemus, from above has to happen. Would you get your mind out of the sacrifices in the temple and all of the ways that you've been trying to work out your salvation yourself and know that this has to happen from above? That's why he sets things in that, in that contrast, in those dichotomies. That you're, you're still a man who's earthbound. It's going to be tough to get him off of that. That's for sure. We hope that he actually did at some point. Verse 12, if I, here he goes again, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe. Things that you obviously can see and understand as a brilliant theologian, Judaic theologian. How can I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This is really quite a statement. Basically, the answer is, it's impossible. You must be born from above. God has got to give you the ability to make any sense out of this or anything in Scripture for that matter. If you can't come off of this earthly perspective, which we can make explanations for what we see and hear, what we read in actual hard copy books or we can, we can explain those things. We understand those things on whatever level. If you don't get that, if you're still stuck on that whole illustration that I used as, as a symbol of a man must be born again, and you're thinking about a physical birth, how are you ever going to see something heavenly? These are spiritual matters, and they're spiritually appraised, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Though these truths were taught in our Old Testament, their scriptures, that people did not, would not receive them. So this is where he is with them. And I like what Hendrickson said here. Hendrickson said, such heavenly things lie completely outside of the range of man's experience. Tell me what eternity looks like. Tell me what infinity looks like. Well, eternity is like a forever period of time. <laughs> you can't use that word. Time is an invented thing. Now go at it again. Um, yeah. How about infinity? What's well, a long distance? Ah, can't use that word distance. He created the world. He created time. And he created the expanse. If he takes away space, what are you left with? Ah. Uh, now you've got a conundrum, don't you? 
He's making an important point here, but back to Hendrickson. He says, in their conception and origin, they are so majestic and transcendent that they could never have occurred to man's finite mind. It's impossible. And yet how discouraged we sometimes fall in temptation to become when we think we've presented the gospel perfectly clearly to somebody whose consequences of their life have clearly come crumbling down on top of them, and yet they still don't get it or won't get it. We don't know which, but it's going to have to be God at the end of the day, no matter what anyway, to get them to see it. We don't have the facility. We don't have the capacity. We, don't, we, don't, we, we aren't capable. But even if we were, we don't have the ability, even if we were willing, and we're not. He has to change that too, doesn't he? It's a change of affections. Affections off of this place and onto things spiritual, onto things heavenly. That's what he's trying to get across. Verse 13, no one, and look at things in contrast, the, two, the dichotomies here, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, you will not, you cannot understand heavenly things. Heavenly things are, are unseen by the physical eye, and they're uncorrupted. You're corrupted, Nicodemus. You've got cataracts. You can't see. And so there's no one on this fallen planet because the entire planet and all of humanity is fallen that has ever ascended to heaven. And that's what you need. That's what's needed here. We think in terms of why Jesus came and the work that he accomplished and the things that bring about our salvation. We have the elements for communion here today and all of that. But firstly, someone has to come from up there that's pure and holy, that understands spiritual things, has to come down, and it has to make sense. So they have to take on a, a body of flesh. They have to be a man who speaks. And that's what Jesus has done. No one has ascended to heaven. So he continues the contrasting comparisons. You cannot understand these things, Nicodemus, unless somebody descends from heaven to tell you. That's the only way. And that's exactly who he was. But this is all through Scripture, that he has come down from above. John 6.33, we'll see this as we go through John's Gospel. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 38 of John 6, for I have come down from heaven. Verse 51 of John 6, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Think of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses was lifted up, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this. It's even having a heads up on these things as you've given us our scriptures to read for during through the course of our lives, it still strikes us somewhat enigmatically. We need your help in understanding what you're saying, understanding it rightly. More than that, we want to understand the technique of of apologetic, the the technique that you're using of and what's being necessary to be pointed out to this great teacher at that time. 
So Lord, help us now. We would see you glorified as you reveal these things to us through the scriptures. This we ask and look forward to. In Jesus' name, amen. So truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen. We see the the parallelism there, but you do not receive our testimony. So this opening expression, truly, truly, I say to you, another version says, I solemnly uh, say to you, I solemnly assure you, most assuredly I say to you, the New King James says, the we here, we speak of what we know, is plural in the Greek. So who's the we? We can speculate that he's talking about maybe John the Baptist. Maybe he's also talking about those disciples that were with him that witnessed those powerful miracles that he's referring to there. We bear witness to what we've seen. Maybe they're with him. The you is also parallel uh, parallel in the Greek as well. So it's Nicodemus and those who continue to hear, continue to see or witness these things, and yet, and this is the biblical language, an important word, but yet you did not receive. You did not receive the testimony. You did not receive me. And yet you heard. But as we learn in the other Gospels, the Synoptics, they're, they're listening, but they're not hearing. They're seeing, but they're not believing. They're rejecting what is clear to them before their very eyes. So this, we can say, is, is who he's referring to there. We know it's really both the world and uh, his fellow Jews, because you remember verse 10 in chapter 1? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. They didn't receive him. The world didn't receive him. But then verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Important word, important concept. His own people, his own nation, his own people, Israel, his own Jewish people are rejecting him. They're not receiving him. You remember that when we were in chapter 1. So this is a, a willful rejection of what is clearly true and, and what should have been anticipated from the Old Testament. We speak and bear witness So he's not only speaking truth because he is the truth embodied. He's speaking from what the Father has given him. And that's got to annoy them, especially if he declares that. I came to fulfill the Father's will, not my own. What I speak to you are the words I'm given by the Father, and so on. And they still reject. You remember First John Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. That which we, was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Well, you, you either get the impression that he's redundant or there's some things that he wants to emphasize in that epistle. I want you to know the things that we saw, the things that were manifest to us. We, we wouldn't have seen with eyes to see had the Father not revealed them to us. We saw, we touched, we knew who Jesus was as the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter himself declared in Matthew 16. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, the Father who is in heaven, and Jesus was just delighted by that because he loves the Father and he loves Peter and he loves to see his Father working. His father is at work. It's just an amazing testimony. But you do not receive our testimony. So he obviously wasn't ready to accept the doctrine of regeneration. He totally doesn't get it, but it's because he doesn't understand it. We can understand that, right? 
There's people that you make the gospel very clear to them and they just don't get it. But you sense there may be something willful about it, but yet there's also an unwitting ignorance about it because they're dead and blind, right? So Jesus knows his heart. In John 8, 26, he says, He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Verse 38 of John 8, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. The things that you do are things that serve Satan's agenda, agenda, not the Father in heaven. I speak what I have seen with my Father. I give voice to that. I give voice to the things that I've seen with my Father. How can you reject that testimony? Especially when it's backed up with so many obvious, clear, and powerful, undeniable miracles. John 12, 49 to 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. That ought to get their attention. It has ours. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Sole reason he's walking the earth to fulfill the Father's will and the redemptive plan of mankind. That's it. John 14, 24, The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 17, 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me. This is the high priestly prayer. He's talking about his disciples. It's a beautiful moment. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They get that. We can see why he's praying that to the Father. He's praying. We could speculate in a moment of gratitude. You did this. I'm your son. And a son loves to see his father at work. And the Father has revealed these things as he did with Peter. Beautiful prayer. And they have believed that you sent me. This is the son's report to his father with glee, with joy, with wonderful expectation. The father's glorified these men that I love that were written in the book of life. They have come to know that had to be revealed. There had to be regeneration. They had to have their heart brought to life. And they have. And they have seen you and they know you. Now whether he got that animated in his prayer, I don't know. I do, don't you? If Nicodemus, the most well-educated man in the scriptures, that we got the teacher, you or the teacher plus the a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, somebody who is respected, somebody who teaches, and somebody who is definitely in a place for getting it. Chapter eight and verse forty-two: For I came from God, and I am here. <laughs> John 16, 28, I came from the Father and have come down or come into the world. Martha even. Mary and Martha, remember that? And Lazarus' death and Lazarus. Lazarus is raised and all. I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She says, yes. Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She gets it. She gets it. So no human has ever ascended to heaven to get that information, regardless of how these, many of these goofy stories there are in the market of somebody who says they went to heaven or not. I think demons have a, a real good time having, having fun with us, don't you? 
mysterious plan of redemption then would remain a mystery, a complete, confounding mystery, unless the Son of Man had not come down and he has descended from heaven to reveal this to us. Using the same dichotomy, John will do the, use the same dichotomy in John three thirty one to 32. So shortly, we revisit John the Baptist again, right after he's done with his uh, instruction to Nicodemus. And he says this. Listen to how he juxtaposes these things too in contrast. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He who bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. He's saying the same thing, John the Baptist. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This will take the balance of our time. So this is the second instance where we see Jesus using Old Testament imagery to foreshadow some aspect of his role as a redeemer. You remember what the first one was? He used Jacob's ladder. Remember? He used Jacob's ladder in chapter 1, verse 51 to reference his role as a mediator. Angels ascending and descending, not on a staircase anymore, but on whom? I just gave you a hint. On him. He's the mediator. That's his role as mediator. And now the Son of Man must be lifted up. Just like Moses with the serpent on the pole. Same thing, but that's his role as a healer. I will heal. He is Jehovah Rapha. Our God who heals, the Lord who heals because of what he's done, because of what we commemorate here today. So Moses being, lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, you're familiar with that story. It comes from Numbers 21, 4 to 9. So we can turn to that for a moment and you'll see if you're not familiar with it. Numbers 21, beginning in 4, to verse 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea and to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it, at the bronze serpent, and live. So this is his role as a healer. Nicodemus, he has to use physical things. He uses the issue of physical birth to get them him to the 180 degree thinking about his spiritual heart had to be reborn made brought back to life and now he uses like he did with Jacob's ladder he's using another Old Testament uh, story to make another very important point just like the serpent on a pole was raised up so that the people might be healed when they did what when they looked upon it that's important. So it's not, it's, not just, um, it's not just his act of, of um, believing. It's both an act of believing and it's an act of obedience, isn't it? They always go hand in hand. 
he who believes abides by the Lord's commands. And he's saying, if you want to be healed, look up at the pole, at the serpent on the pole. And so what do they do? Well, this is just a sidebar. But by the time you get into 1 Kings, they've made the serpent on a pole, they've kept it, and they worship it. Uh, So I believe it's Hezekiah has it destroyed, finally. So for all those years, they had been venerating the pole with the snake on it. That's how foolish we can be in terms of our idolatry. So, in both of these cases, though, with the pole in the wilderness and the cross and Jesus being raised up and looking up at him, there's the certainty of death. Those who need the cross have certainly uh, facing eternal death and they will die in the wilderness if they don't look up at the serpent on the pole. So we understand that comparison. In John twelve thirty two, it says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So this idea of being lifted up is an important one. He has to be raised up. The people have to look up to him. And in the case of when the actual crucifixion happened, they literally, that was their public statement. They looked up to him those that gathered around and who didn't just walk by mocking. They looked up to him for healing. They looked up to him to understand what they were seeing. So, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, it says. Now that certainly refers to, and you've got this, I'm sure, that it refers to his being lifted up on the cross. But when you look at Scripture, it actually means more than just his crucifixion. It also includes his ascension and his exaltation. So his being lifted up includes all of those things. The completed work of Christ, the ascension and exaltation. We see in John 2 verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will what? Raise it up. I will raise it up. It will be raised up. Acts 1 and verse 9 at the ascension. And when he had said these things, they were looking on, they're looking on him who was on the cross as they looked up at him on the cross. Now he's with them all of those days. Now it's time for him to depart and they watch him be lifted up. So it says that he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So that makes sense to me because that's explains to me anyway why an angel would say, why are you what? Why are you looking up? He told you that he is going to in a like manner return. Remember that? He's coming back. But they looked up and they followed him off. Just in the next chapter, Acts two, thirty two to thirty three. This is Peter preaching with fire. This Jesus was raised up, and of that we all are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. See, all of these come together now. He gets it. We lift, they lifted him up on the cross, but that's so that he could finish that work of atonement so that when they put him in the tomb, he would be lifted up from there when he is finally ascending from this earth and he is now exalted. He's lifted up by the Father and his right, the right hand of the Father, is, his place there is now restored. It's pretty remarkable. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. You see, Nicodemus, the things that we have seen, the things that we have heard, the things that we attest to, you're not receiving. They were. At the time, as we saw when we were in those portions of Acts, in chapter 5, when he's preaching again, 5.30 to 32, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him. There's all three of them. 
He's raised up in his ascension. Who? The one who was lifted up by you when you killed him. And now he's exalted with the Father. Amazing. Amazing. God has exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Then John chapter 8, 23, 24, and 28. Jesus said to them, You are from below. I am from above. Still keeping things in contrast. Pulling them apart so they could see you're, you're, you have to get completely wholly out of your perspective here on earth. The perspective that you've had needs to turn a different way. It's got to be turned vertical. You are from below. I am from above. You could insert right there. Don't you understand? You must be born from above. If you're going to understand any of this, you are of this world. He goes on to say, I am not of this world. You see the dichotomy, the contrast. It's all through scripture. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Am I, am I getting through to your ear gate? I know you hear the words. I know that you can physically hear me. Do you understand? I'd love to see my Father working right now. Will you hear me in your heart? And if you have, if you have, you've heard from the Father Himself. On and on he drives this home, over and over. And that makes sense to me. That's the issue. Therein lies the rub. We have no problem explaining things. We can illustrate things, but all of those things have one thing in common. They're earthbound. We give earthbound illustrations because it's the context we're in. Can we describe the things we've seen in heaven? No, because we haven't been there yet. That's what he's trying to get across to Nicodemus. It's impossible for you. He goes on in verse 28 of John 8. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man then you will know that I am He. The interesting thing is, the word He isn't in the Greek. So what's He saying? Then you will know I am. How many of them? I'm curious to know how many of them got that. And either were blown away by it in a good way or looking for a stone to stone him. When you see me lifted up, well, not on the cross, just. So see, he means more than that. When you see me lifted up, because you're going to kill me, you'll uh, execute me on the cross, you'll lift me up, and you will see me. But then you will put me in a tomb, and from there, I will be lifted up. I will ascend into heaven and I will be exalted all the way into a place where you cannot come because you do not believe. And because you do not believe, you do not see. They must look upon him whom they have pierced. You must look upon them whom they have pierced. Zechariah 12.10 prophesies this, remember? Might have covered it at Christmas time. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, you see the significance of that expression now? On him whom they have what? Pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over his firstborn. And they will look. At one point or another, they will look and see when I am lifted up, when I am lifted all the way up, when you're able to see that I've been lifted all the way up, then you will know that I am. Remarkable. Remarkable. 
chapter 19 of John 36 and 37. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. It's repeated here now. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced, making the connection to Zechariah. Hebrews 12, 2, what are we called to do there? So what are we to do? So all this took a place at a place in time. It's done. He's finished his work. He's been lifted up in three different ways. Now he's exalted. What are we to do? We believe. We see him and we believe. I understand. Lord, you've allowed me to see. This makes me eternally grateful. I see. I see. I understand. I understand my situation before you. I understand my need for a Savior. I see. I understand. Lord, have mercy. Lord, forgive me. You're forgiven. That's it? See, this is the sticky wicket for Nicodemus, isn't it? Yes, that's it. If you only believe. If you'd only believe. Looking to Jesus, remember? Looking. See, it, it hasn't stopped, has it? You see that? It's the same thing. When do we take our eyes off of Jesus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full, that's it, in His glorious, wonderful face. See, we have to use physical symbols, don't we? Because that's our context. That's all we understand. God, literally, as spirit, doesn't have a face a physical face, Jesus did when he came as a man. I'm talking about God in general. How do we behold his face? When we believe, and God has made us able to believe and understand, opened our eyes so that we can see, and we behold the resplendent beauty of the Messiah as he emerges from the scriptures. And it's it's overwhelming at times. We see the one who came to us, uh, his dead, blind enemy, while we were sinners, while we were yet sinning, what? Romans 5, 8, Christ, what? Died for us. And now we see, once I was blind, now I see. We have all these wonderful songs. This is where that imagery comes from. We're looking to Jesus. That doesn't stop. It's not a physical one. Let's not... Let's not Catch Nicodemus' disease. (laughs) It's not physical. It's spiritual. How do you look to him? Spiritually. He woke me up at about 3.30 this morning. And the, the most powerful, and if you've experienced this, the most powerful interlude with the Son of God who saved my life is is communing just through your prayers, just through your thoughts. He's using your understanding of Scripture to have you commune with Him rightly according to to knowledge, according to what the truth is. And it's powerful. It's through His Word and by His Spirit that these things are even possible. And they are. Who gives you a sense of peace? I mean a real peace, an internal peace. Who gives you a sense of contentment? We are the most discontented lot on the planet. There's always something better somewhere else. He and He alone brings that godliness with, who's with me? Contentment is what? Great gain. To be godly and to be content. And only He brings that when we're looking to Him. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Exalted. Lifted up. Risen. Exalted. Verse 15. That whoever, and here's the reason, here's the purpose clause, Why? Why are we to 
see Christ lifted up? Why are we look upon him that's lifted up on the cross, now risen, now exalted? This is the simple reason. And yet it means everything. It means our salvation, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We must look upon him who we pierced. We have to make it personal. We have to find ourselves, as Rembrandt did, in his painting, Raising the Cross. He painted himself, beret and all, at the center. He's got the centerpiece of the painting, Raising the Cross. That's it. That's it. I'd love to have that painting, but I don't think I have the funds for it. <clears throat> I can make a copy. That's right. But it's a glorious understanding of finding yourself at the cross. But the atonement for sin, all of the healing that takes place by looking upon Jesus, the healing of the wounded soul, all those things that hopefully we look for, is only efficacious for those that believe. That's what he's saying. And belief, as I said before, is proven in obedience. They had to look, even in the wilderness, you have to go to that pole and you have to look up. Now, if you had grumbled in your heart, they were grumblers, weren't they? That's what got them into trouble. They're complaining. Not only against Moses, but against God. And now God's telling them to go to this pole and look at one of those snakes up on a pole? That doesn't make any sense to me. Yes, with a human mind. Don't think earthly things. You must think heavenly things. If he says to do that, then that's what I need to do. If he says to look upon Jesus, then that's what I need to do. If I see him there on the cross bearing my sins, then that's what he did. If they put him in the tomb and raised him up, then that's what happened. If he's exalted at the right hand of God and his throne, then there he is. Do you believe Do you believe? Do you see him? Nicodemus said to Jesus in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. We know is not going to cut it, is it? The demons believe and tremble. They know who Jesus is. I know who you are. You're the Holy One, the Son of God. They know who he is. That's not enough. It's not enough to know a set of facts. It's not enough. Salvation comes to those who know and believe. I believe. What's the difference? How do I know I've, I've made it to the difference? Because you entrust your entire life to Him. That makes me stand at the threshold of death without fear. Because this is not my home, nor is it a place I want to stay. I only want to stay every moment of what he has purpose for me so he can be glorified in the building of his kingdom. But I want to be with him. I've had a belly full of myself in this world. I thank God for belief. I thank God for what his son has done. Romans 4, 24 to 25 it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trans trespasses and raised for our justification. Do we believe that or not? Or is that just something that we know, we hear, and it makes sense to us, but I haven't entrusted myself to him. You follow one that you love. You follow one that you believe in. You follow the one that saved your life and your eternal soul. You're drawn to him. You're attracted to him. The words that he says are, 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 like, are like honey. They're, like, they're more expensive than gold, as the scripture says, than fine gold. The world has no hold on a person like that, no matter what's dangled before their eyes. They've already left, in a sense, the crucifixion was a hateful act of man, but the resurrection is a loving, the loving, or the loving act of God. So hateful men put him to death. We were there in the terms of our sin that put him there. And God raised him up. 
Alan Richardson said, Every book in the New Testament declares or assumes that Christ rose from the dead. End quote. But it's not the preaching of the crucifixion. You remember going through Acts. You remember the, your understanding of the epistles and so on, especially Acts where Paul is, there, has his life threatened and so on. It's not because of the preaching of the crucifixion, is it? That was a hateful act of men. They were probably cheering that on. It's whenever he preached what? The resurrection that he was lifted up. Not just on the cross, but from the tomb and exalted to the right hand of the Father on high. When Jesus was pressed for a sign, all he gave him was the sign of the resurrection. He was doing all kinds of miracles. That wasn't enough. Give us another sign. Give us a sign. Tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. I'll be in the belly of Jonah's, like Jonah in the great fish. I'll be in the tomb for three days, same thing. But then he'll rise. He knew that that was the issue that they hated, that they wanted to kill him for. Paul almost got killed over that issue. That one word, if you remember, when we went through that in Paul's preaching in Acts. Jesus, Romans 1, verse 4, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The crucifixion was the world's darkest hour and it was the brightest day in heaven. The resurrection was the brightest day in heaven. Another man wrote, The ignominious raising on the cross is really a majestic elevation to glory. That's the way we need to see it. Not the ugliness of the cross, but the lifting, the raising up on the cross, paying the price for the sins, and then being placed in the tomb, and being raised up from there, and then all the way up in his ascension, and then seated at the right hand of God the Father. Eternal life. Eternal life with God begins now. The moment a person looks to Jesus, looks upon Jesus for forgiveness, their life is restored forever. Son of man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. i finish with this all, realizing, I want you to realize this all-important dichotomy belongs to us as well. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then... By the way, I prefer the word since. Since is actually preferred, I believe. Since you have been raised with Christ. Well, you haven't died yet. Neither of the folks that are reading his epistle back then. How have I been raised with Christ? If then or since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's a sense in which we see this theology spelled out in John, or excuse me, Romans chapter 6 where we died with Christ and were risen with Christ. This is in a past tense form. There's a way that for the believer that's already secured. The place in heaven is already secured. And so we're to fix our mind on that. We're to think heavenly things. Now that we have the Holy Spirit resident in us, and the Word of God comes to life, we look unto Jesus. Through the Word of God, through prayer, we look upward which is the place of our belonging, the place of our home going. Revelation 1.7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so. Amen. Lifted up on the cross. He's risen in glory. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these great truths that you reveal to us here today through your word. 
And for your glory's sake, O Lord, I pray that anyone within the sound of my voice who hasn't known you in this very real way, that they too would look to you in this moment, that they would look to you, O Lord, the author and perfecter of all faith, and then be forgiven, that we might know our place in glory forever with you. That is our desire. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.